0: Welcome to the Calvary Young Adults Podcast. We exist to make disciples who live and love like Jesus. Here's today's sermon.
1: Uh, I want to start with a question tonight. And the question is, do, am I the only one who gets uh, one of those screen time reports from Apple? Anybody else get those? Do you get them on Sunday mornings like I do? Yes. Ooh, I get them. Okay. Does anybody else get depressed when they get their screen time report? No, you're you're more disciplined than I am? Okay. Um, I always get these screen time reports in the middle of the 9 a.m. service at church, and I'm just convicted. It's like the Holy Spirit's like, you spent too much time on your phone this week. And um, just really quick, is anybody willing to share their highest screen time report of all time? Yeah, Josh. I didn't think anybody was going to share. 24 hours. Oh, wow. You can't go higher than that. 24 hours. Um <laughs> So, Josh is proving my point, and here's the point, friends. All of the data, all of the research says that our phone usage is what? Up, right? More people have them, more people spending time on them, more people downloading apps, more people dating on them, more social media, more streaming, more shopping. All the data is up into the right year after year. And the truth is with the rise of the social media and these algorithms that are insane that advertise and curate content for us, each and every one of us is being targeted and shaped and formed more than we could possibly imagine on a daily basis by these things. We are all being discipled in some way, shape, or form by what we consume And if we think about it, the thing that we're consuming more than anything is the content coming from these phones. No, this is not a tech seminar. No, I'm not telling you to get off your phone right now, but I'm just saying we're seeing the results of our consumption and it's not pretty, right? More anxiety, more depression, more disassociation, more loneliness, less sleep, less satisfaction. This is the, cur- the cultural current that we are swimming in. This is the air that you are breathing in. And this is why we need a new year with new rhythms in our lives, because newsflash, this isn't working. So we've talked about prayer. We've talked about fasting. And tonight we talk about solitude and silence. Anybody stoked on that? Just jacked? Excited about solitude and silence. Uh, Why solitude and silence? And the answer is because the soul is a funny thing. I want you to look at this quote from Parker Palmer about our soul. I love this author and this quote. He says, the soul is like a wild animal, tough, resilient, savvy, self-sufficient. It knows how to survive in hard places, but it is also shy, just like a wild animal, It seeks safety in the dense underbrush. If we wanna see a wild animal, we know the last thing we should do is go crashing through the woods, yelling for it to come out. But if we will walk quietly into the woods, sit patiently by the base of the tree and fade into our surroundings, the wild animal we seek might put in an appearance. Friends, we need to become acquainted with our soul when that happens through silence and solitude. You might ask, what is the practice of silence and solitude, and that's simple. It's being alone and not talking. Why do we choose solitude and silence? Because solitude and silence is turning down the volume of this world so that we might hear the voice of God who speaks in a whisper. Oswald Chambers says this. He says, Jesus doesn't take us aside and explain things to us all the time. I love that. It's just like your uncle, your dad being like, here's how it is. Jesus doesn't take us aside and explain things to us all the time. He explains things as we are able to understand them. The lives of others are examples for us, but hear this, but God requires us to examine our own souls. And I love this, and I need you to pay attention to this last part of the quote because it's really important. It is a slow work, so slow that it takes God all of time and eternity to make a man or woman conform to his purpose. To talk about solitude and silence tonight, we're gonna get into this passage in Luke 4, and it's Jesus in the wilderness, and Jesus has been fasting, and he has been praying, and then he is led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be alone alone. And then the enemy tempts him. And I'm gonna explain why we're, we're using this passage after I read it. But if you have uh, a Bible, you know, open up to Luke 4. If you have your phone, you can do it or it'll be on the screen. Um, Luke 4 says this, "'Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, "'left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit "'into the wilderness, "'where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. "'He ate nothing during those days, "'and at the end of them he was hungry. "'The devil said to him, "'If you are the Son of God, "'tell this stone to become bread.'" Jesus answered, "'It is written, "'Man shall not live on bread alone.'" The devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor. It has been given to me and I can give it to anybody I want to. If you worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Strike two, the devil comes with a curveball with his third pitch. It says the devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. And he said, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down from here. A third response, for it is written, he will command, oh no, this is, sorry, this is Satan continuing to quote scripture to Jesus. He will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered, it is said, do not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished all this tempting, he left them in until an opportune time. I wanna pray for us because, um, God is alive and not dead. He's not static. He's active and he wants to meet with you right now. Like the Holy Spirit wants to show up and that's what he does through his word. So I just wanna pray. God, I thank you that you are here, that you are present. God, I thank you that you know everything about every single person in this room and none of us are here by accident. God, you know every single thing that we've all bought, brought into this room tonight. God, I praise you that you love us exactly as we are and not as we should be because there's not one person in this room that is as they should be. God, it's your grace that invites us in. So, right now, God, through your grace, through your word, God, would you heal things that are broken in our lives? Would you wake up things that are sleeping in our lives? And God, would you bring back to life things that are dead and dying? And I pray that you would do this because you can do this through your word and through your spirit. And I pray these things in your name, amen. So we're talking about solitude and silence. So why are we talking about Jesus being tempted? That might be the question you're asking if you're thinking at all right now. And um, I... We're using this passage because uh, this is the framing for the passage. I believe that the enemy tests Jesus according to what he thinks his greatest desires might be. So for example, if I want you to overeat, I'm not going to put a plate of green beans in front of you. I'll put a pizza in front of you. Like if you want me to eat too much of something, you're not going to give me deviled eggs. I hate deviled eggs. No offense to anybody who loves them. You're going to put burgers in front of me, right? So I think as Jesus is led into the desert by the Spirit, the the, the enemy is tempting him based off of things he thinks he might, Jesus might bite at. Does that make sense? He's not going to test him on things that wouldn't be attractive. And so the reason we're studying this passage is I believe when we go into silence and when we go into solitude and when we try to spend time with God, the very things that might have come up in Jesus as temptations will come up in us as well. And tonight I want to talk about three things that will come up in you as you try to seek the Lord and spend time in solitude and silence with the the Lord. And the first one is provision, the second one is pride, and the third one is people. The first one is provision. Somebody say provision. Say a little louder. Say provision. So what is Satan getting at here? He says, if you're the son of God, tell the stone to become bread. Jesus has been 40 days without food, water. He's tired, he's exhausted, he's hungry. And what is Satan getting at here? He's saying, Jesus, if you are who you say you are, surely you can provide bread for yourself to eat. If you are who you say you are, surely you don't need to wait on God's provision in your life. Show your power, show your worth, show who you are and turn this stone into bread. And that really hits on the first desire of ours when we come into solitude and silence and turn the volume of the world down. We're gonna find this thing coming up in us that says, uh, I wanna provide for myself as opposed to letting God provide for me. And that's the first thing I want you to hear. We are so prone to provide for ourselves versus letting God provide. And this is one of the deepest driving forces that we face in our lives. It's at the core of our being, whether you say it with your lips, so much of the time we say it with our lives, we don't wanna be reliant on anybody more than we're reliant on ourselves. Can anybody resonate with that in here tonight? At the core of our being, we want both our needs and our wants fulfilled on our timetable according to our plans and according to our calendar. If we're honest in here, we don't want to wait on God for a job or an apartment or a girlfriend or a husband. We want the plan. We have a plan for our life, and we just wish God would get on our timetable sooner rather than later. But what does Jesus say? He said, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone. When Jesus is presented with the opportunity to provide for himself, he reminds scripture, or he he reminds Satan and himself that he doesn't get his sustenance from bread, he gets his sustenance from the word of God. Can we talk about bread in the Bible really quick? Just three things about bread in the Bible. So this is like turn stone into bread. Jesus said, "I I don't just live on bread, I live on the word of God. I wanna talk about three things with bread in the Bible. The first one is that bread equals the word of God. Jesus is saying the word of God sustains him in a way that this food that is made of flour and water could never possibly sustain him. He's saying that the word of God is his sustenance. That's the first thing that we hear Jesus say about the word of God is that bread is the word of God. The second thing we hear Jesus say about bread is that Jesus says that he is the bread of life. Later on in his ministry, he goes on to say that I am the bread of life and that whoever comes to me will never hunger or thirst again. He offers himself as this word that became flesh and dwelt among us and invites us into this relationship. And he says, if you just get a taste of me, if you just get a taste of me, you will never hunger again. And the last thing that we see in the Bible about bread is that broken bread equals a sacrifice. Jesus goes on to break bread with his disciples on the last night of his life, and he tells them that this broken bread represents his broken body that's broken for us, that represents this new covenant translation. This broken bread ultimately leads to your healing in my salvation. So Satan's talking about stones and turning into bread, and Jesus is saying, I have a much bigger view of sustenance than you do. I have a much bigger view of bread than you do. Bread is the word of God. Bread of life is Jesus and broken bread equals this sacrifice. But can I really just be real in here? That, I think that's some good theology. I did some work on that this week. I looked up the different places where we could find bread. I broke it down for you, gave you three different options to choose from. But you know what I think? I think that we don't really trust God to provide for us like he said he would. We have good answers. We have Sunday school answers. You've been around church. How many people have like grown up around church? Raise your hand. I just wanna see you. Okay, cool. Um, So we have good Sunday school answers. We know good theological answers for God providing for us. But if we were really, really honest, which church is a good place to be honest, right? I think we struggle to trust that God will provide. I have a friend who's a pastor and his name's Mike Erie. And he tells the story of his friend. Uh, His friend and his wife were gonna be foster parents and they were actually gonna adopt this nine-year-old boy. This nine-year-old boy had been in eight foster homes in nine years. And so when this nine-year-old comes to their house, this man and this wife sit this boy down and say, hey, I know you've been in eight houses so far. This is your ninth house in your ninth year, uh, but we're not just going to foster you. We're going to adopt you. And what that means is everything we have is yours. Our name is yours. Uh, You can never do anything that would break our relationship with you. You are officially in our family. And they just explained how life worked there. You know, we provide three meals a day, like you're going to go to school. There's food in the pantry, yada, yada, yada. And so as the weeks go on, this couple starts realizing that this nine-year-old boy isn't eating at breakfast and at dinner, and they don't know what he's doing at school for lunch, but he's just kind of pushing his food around the plate. And they start to get worried because they think he's gonna, you know, he needs his nutrition as a nine-year-old growing boy. And so as he's at school one day, this wife goes into the room of this boy and she's cleaning up his room because it's kind of dirty. And she starts to discover something. She starts to discover food hidden everywhere in this room. Cookies, crackers, bread, peanut butter, under the bed, in the closet, in the drawer. And she starts to recognize that this food that's hidden everywhere in his room is food from their pantry. So he's been taking food out of their pantry and hiding it all throughout the room. And as they sit him down, as he comes home from school and they start to ask him questions about why he's hiding food away when they're providing three square meals a day and he can go to that pantry anytime he wants, he just starts to explain to them, hi, good to see you both, welcome. He starts to explain to both of them, in each one of these houses that I've been in, I haven't been sure that I was going to get a meal. In each one of these houses, I was with other kids and I had to hide this food away because I didn't know if my next meal was coming. Friends, I believe that's how we are with God so much of the time. He's saying, you are my daughter, you are my son. I've adopted you. There is nothing that I will not provide for you. You can come to me with everything, but there are areas of our life that, just like this little boy, we're stowing away, we're hiding away, we're storing up for a rainy day because we truly don't believe that God is going to provide for us in that way. Where is that place for you tonight? Is it your desire for a husband or a wife? Is it that job or that promotion that you want so badly that it's, it means so much to you that it's so hard to trust God with? Does that make sense? Like felt experience. I know that's not the theology that we claim, but it's the lives that we live so much of the time. God, I want this so bad. I don't know if I can trust you with that. I want you to hear tonight that you have a good, good, good father who says you can trust me with that. And I'm not your genie, so it might not turn out exactly how you envisioned it, but I'm your God, so it's going to turn out exactly as it should in your life for your good and for my glory. That's what your God is saying to you. So as you come into solitude and silence, God is saying, give to me those areas, those places that you want so bad, but you just don't want to trust me with. Give me those areas. We see just, I'm going to give you practical tips at the, each, at the end of each one of these points. The first practical tip I want to give you is Jesus combated the lies and silence and solitude with scripture. You notice that? You'll notice this. Every time Satan uses scripture against him, Jesus like reframes it, says, stop proof texting Satan. I'm going to give you the real and gives him scripture back. My, my tip to you in silence and solitude is to memorize scripture. A lot of you have been asking how you memorize scripture. An amazing way, I think, that you can memorize scripture and actually read scripture is to write scripture out in a journal with your own hand in a pen. Try this. Will you try this this week? Go to a passage that you love and write it out with your own hand. Why would you do that? Because our entire life is scrolling at like 15 miles, 20, 30 miles an hour. If you're forced to write something out with your hand, you have to go at the pace that you're meant to read this thing at, and it's going to marinate, and it's going to saturate you in a different way than if you're just reading through it at, 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 like, at a really fast pace. Does that make sense? So that's your first tip. Memorize scripture uh, by writing out scripture in your journal. The second thing we see the devil tempt Jesus with is power and... Um, He takes Jesus up to this high place and an instant shows him all the kingdoms in the world and says, all of this can be yours if you just bow down to me. What is Satan getting at here? He's saying the best thing that you can possibly attain in this life is power. And I can fulfill your desire for power. He's trying to appeal to this thing that we all have within us when it comes to power. And um, I'll just say this, the desire for power comes from pride. The desire for power comes from pride. I think if you comb through the scriptures, you'll find that pride is actually longing for more control, more power, and more autonomy than God has allowed us to have. I want you to hear that again. Pride is longing for more control, more power, and more autonomy than God has designed and allowed us to have. And we see it in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve grabbed for the fruit and we see it in our own lives over, over, and over again. We want more power. We want more control than God has designed. And that really does come from this place of pride. And here we see Jesus being offered power by Satan. So he's trying to get at any pride that might be down, there in Jesus's heart or mind or soul, and I want you to think about this, out of any person on the face of this earth, Jesus had the right to this kind of power. He had the right to rule over every nation of the earth. He would be the most trustworthy leader that has ever ruled any nation ever. Out of any person that's ever walked the face of this earth, Jesus had the right to actually think highly of himself, because he was God and he was perfect. Out of any person that walked the face of this earth, Jesus could be trusted with this type of power that Satan is offering. But what's his response to Satan? He said, it is is written, "'Worship the Lord your God and serve him only.'" Friends, Jesus shows us what humility looks like, that he came as a suffering servant instead of a conquering king. And the second thing I wanna say about us, think about this, in your relationship with God, you go into solitude, you go into silence, things start coming up that are within you. The second thing that's gonna be coming up within you is you grabbing for power instead of submitting to God's will. Grabbing for power instead of submitting to God's will. Could I just be real in here? If there's something that any of us struggle with more than anything else, it's pride. And none of us are safe from it. And really, like, Pride's easier to spot outside of the church than inside of the church. Have you experienced this? Anybody else or is that just me? It's so much easier to spot outside of the church because it's just kind of like plain and in your face and you kind of get it and people will just like flex and they're like, yeah, I'm, I'm the best at this or I am better than you in some way, shape or form. And in the church, we think we disguise it so well, but if you just, we're low key like the most falsely humble people on the planet. Because we're supposed to be, but there's some stuff still in here that's not. Have you ever done it? Have you ever like in your life, like in your job, like you work so hard and you just like killed something. You just like, you killed that project or you killed this, you killed that. You know what? I'm gonna lead with vulnerability. Is it cool if I like just totally transparent, open with you right now? I wanna lead in vulnerability and create vulnerable space. There's times when I'm like, I work so hard on a mes- message I worked all week on this. I came up here, I delivered it exactly like I wanted to. And somebody comes up to me and is like, dude, that was amazing. And, and I give him like, oh, praise God. But in my head, I'm like, yeah, it was. I was, that would, like, I killed that. And that's what's going on in my head. But I, I give him like, yeah, praise God. Thank you so much. I'm so glad you were blessed by it. Or the opposite side of that is you work so hard all week on something, you can't wait to like do your thing at your job. And for me, it's like, this is part of my job. And I'll come up here and I work so hard all week and I'll just go as hard as I can. I'm just sitting here like, this isn't working like I thought it was gonna work. And then afterwards, I'm just walking around going, oh my gosh, did anybody get anything out of that? Did anybody get... And the amount that I'm thinking about myself in that moment, and this is just... Also, this is something that I've worked through enough to share openly. This isn't my counseling session with you. So you can like say, great sermon and I'm not gonna have an existential crisis, okay? So like, we're good. I'm just sharing with you like what pride does in us. Or you like did this amazing thing for your friend, went out of your way, like gave them a gift on their birthday or served them in some crazy way. And they didn't like thank you in the way that you thought. You didn't get the reaction you thought you were gonna get out of them. And you're sitting there, like, do they know what I like? Do they know how amazing what I just did for them was? Like, do they know how amazing that is? Or maybe the longer we follow Jesus, we kind of look down and feel bad on others who aren't with Jesus like we are. They're like, not as close as we are. They don't truly realize how close I am with Jesus and how amazing I am. Friends, we're kind of like insane. And our ego and our pride does not go away. We become more aware of it as we get older, but it just doesn't go away. Sarah and I, we talk about, um, there's a group of us who kind of talk about these sermons every week and just talk about what we should talk about and what people are going through. And we were talking about this idea that like we're living in a culture that we're more and more aware of our pride and our ego. And it's kind of a culture that's telling you like, hey, become way more self-aware and here's all the tools to fix yourself. Like here's all the tools to fix the things that you're discovering about yourself that are wrong. So I think we're like hyper self-aware, hyper looking for tools to fix ourselves and then becoming more and more aware that we're not able to fix ourselves with the tools that have been given to us now that we know just how big our pride or our ego are. And it reminded me of this quote, I'm doubling down on Oswald Chambers tonight, ladies and gentlemen. This quote by Oswald Chambers, it says this, it says, it's astounding how ignorant we are about ourselves we have to get rid of the idea that we understand ourselves. That is always the last bit of pride to go. The only one who understands us is God. When we get into solitude, we realize that pride and ego are baked into us. And then we're like, okay, we know this is in me. How do I fix this? And we run through all the tools and try to do all the things to fix ourselves. And then we realize that it's just not working, but this beautiful thing happens in solitude and in silence. And I'm gonna tell you about it with Django. So I said, we all have pride and we all have egos, right? Um, this represents our pride, this represents our ego. And for some of us it's bigger and some of us, some of us it, it might be smaller. For some of us, we think very highly of ourselves or maybe some of us are down here, you think very lowly of yourself. Both of those things are pride, absolutely. We think when we don't think so highly of ourselves, we're humble. No, you're still thinking of yourself and trying to position yourself lower than who God has called you. And that's also pride, refusing to accept that God has called you to more and called you actually more than your self-image. So both of these are pride. This is, the, this is what happens when we actually get in the presence of God. Can we put this picture up here? Has anybody ever been there? Half Dome? Super sick. Total white guy thing, you know, like hiking, um, <laughs> hiking in Half Dome. Um, but this is this is Half Dome, and. Um, what happens when we get into solitude? I wish we could all go to Half Dome together and bring this tower of Jenga blocks together so that we could understand what happens when we get into solitude and into silence. We bring this ego, and this ego is made up of all the things we've accomplished. This, this ego includes our gifts and our talents. This ego uh, includes our view of ourself. This ego um, just includes everything that we think about ourselves in and a lot of us, when we come into the presence of God, we might think we're great. We might come in with a lot of self-hatred. Whatever we come in with, getting into the presence of God is like being a Jenga tower getting in the presence of Half Dome. Does that make sense at all? Is that tracking at all? It makes sense in my head, but I know it might not. Okay, so compare this pile of blocks to that mountain. Compare how basic and plain and ordinary and fragile this is compared to how beautiful and grand and substantial and overwhelming that is. This is you and that's God. Does that make sense? So this ego that we come in with into the presence of God, what happens is God's not asking you to fix yourself. He's asking you to fix your eyes on him. So he's not asking you to like become everything that he's called you to become. He's asking you to fix your eyes on his glory, his beauty, his worthiness. And what happens when we do that is the ego is fragile and it starts to get like taken apart a little bit. So like when you get in the presence of God, that A you got on that test doesn't matter. When you get in the presence of God, like you failing that test doesn't matter. Like when you get in the presence of God, how good your voice is means nothing. When you get in the presence of God, your resume or how much you've done. I'm not good at Jenga. I'm trying to last a little longer here. Um, All the things that you've done, God's saying none of that stands up to half-dome. Like you're a Jenga tower and that's half-dome. So when you get in the presence of God with this ego that we're really trying to grapple with, this pride that we're trying to get under control, it's not about you getting anything under control. It's about you being in the presence of a holy God that completely undoes you. In Isaiah, I love this. In Isaiah 6, the prophet says, he gets just a glimpse of the Lord and he says, woe is me. Woe is me, I cried, I am ruined, for I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among the people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. I love this because when we get in the presence of this holy of a God, we're undone. But like I said, it's the broken bread that was broken for you, that, that Jesus sacrificed himself on the cross for you and for me. And so when we get in the presence of this God, we're not undone in a way that like we're done, we're undone in a way that like we experience oceans of grace that we don't deserve. We experience being loved for who we are and not who we should be. And so all these things that we're trying to like make a big deal, they don't freaking matter. And eventually they all fall, right? And so what happens in silence and solitude, the, the longer we're in the presence of this God, the more this pride, this ego, I know the babies, I knew this was going to happen. I'm sorry, babies. Um, when this falls down, God gets to put this back together the way he wants to put this back together and you don't have to manage this in the way that you are managing it. Does that make sense? So with our pride, with our egos, we get in the solitude and silence and the presence of God and we are undone and then he gets to start building us back up the way that he wants to and naming the things that matter about us that don't inflate us that don't make us think more highly of ourselves, that don't make us give us that crazy negative self-talk that you came in here with that makes you kind of hate yourself. And and what happens is when you start to love yourself more, you're a lot less critical and a lot less judgmental of the people in your lives because you know everything you're throwing at them in your mind is all the things that you think about yourself anyway. So like you start to build, God starts to build this back up and this is the picture. This is what God wants. Are you ready for this? This Tim, the late amazing pastor, Timothy Keller, he has the most beautiful quote on humility and he calls it gospel humility. And it says this, the essence of gospel humility is not thinking, thinking more of myself or thinking less of myself. It is thinking of myself less. It's not thinking higher of myself. It's not thinking, oh, lower of myself. I need to humble myself. It's like, I just don't think about myself as much as I used to. Because I'm thinking about God. And the more I dwell on God and think about God and spend time in the presence of God, I get God's eyes for the people around me. Now I'm actually concerned for the people around me. And I'm not like, I don't go in a room with like a here I am mentality. I go in a room with a there you are mentality because I'm thinking of myself less. I'm not walking in thinking like, oh, this outfit was a mistake. Like me tonight, I'm not walking in like, I got a haircut this week. What are they gonna think? Like. You don't walk in thinking about yourself. You think about the people that God has put you uh, in the vicinity of. What would it look like for you to get some good time in the presence of the Lord, to dwell on him so this pride and this ego may be shown for what it is and undone so that the Lord could build it back up so that you could think of yourself less in a culture that's telling you to think of yourself more. Practical tips at the end of this second point. (sighs) Create micro silent retreats for yourself. What does that mean? Good question. Uh, That means put your phone on do not disturb or put your phone on timeout and go for a walk with Jesus for 10 minutes, 15 minutes, 20 minutes. Create like these little micro times where you have zero distractions and that you just go and you don't have this device on you that you're so tempted to check that you're so attached to, go on a walk, go on a run. It's You're like, what if something happens? I don't know. People live for like thousands of years without these things. I think we could go on a 15 minute walk, right? We could do it. So try that. Um, the other thing that I, I'm not doing right now, but now that I'm saying this, I'm gonna do it again. I did it last year. I'm not doing it currently. I will start again tomorrow. Um, I was putting my phone to bed. And I know a lot of us do that, but what an amazing thing, right? Like, <laughs> like, like, night-night, like, (laughs) bedroom, like, you know, uh, living room, kitchen, and like, now I go to bed, like, you go to bed, put it, like, this is your baby, put it to bed like a baby, (laughs) give it a kiss, you know, like, put it to bed, you go to your bed, and then, like, sit in your bed with your thoughts, like, just think about stuff, ask God about stuff, pray, pray, It'll be hard at first. A lot of thoughts will come to your mind at first and you'll have like withdrawals from your phone at first for sure. But long-term, it's so much better than like doom scrolling for hours and hours and hours when you go to bed and then like waking up and doing the exact same thing. Okay, third point. Are you ready for the third point? Yeah? I need more from you. Okay. Um, This is gonna be shorter too. The third point's the shortest point. Um, The last way, did somebody say amen? (laughs) Nice. (laughs) Amen. Amen. Thanks, Josh. Super encouraging. I'm thinking of myself less. I'm thinking of God more. Um, So, the last one is the last one is um, so, there's a couple different interpretations of this last one. So, uh, the devil takes Jesus to Jerusalem and has him stand at the highest point of the temple when he basically says, If you're the son of God, throw yourself down from here which is crazy. And then again, he uses scripture and he says, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. Then they'll lift your hands up so that your foot will not strike against the stone. And then Jesus answers back like, don't put the Lord your God to the test. And what is Satan actually getting at here, trying to get Jesus to jump off of a temple in Jerusalem and have angels save him? It's like a weird temptation, right? It's like, that doesn't sound that fun or great. and there's different, there's different interpretations from different theologians. Some would say it's another one of like, hey, if, you're, if you are who you say you are, you could pull off this miraculous stunt because like you're God's guy and God's angels obey you so they can do whatever you want. Others will say that there's, this temple would be at a place in the city that a lot of people would be coming in and out and would actually see this. So it would be like a, a huge deal like jumping off of a building that everybody's like walking into and they're looking up like, oh my gosh, he jumped. And then like, whoa, angels saved him, right? And so that would be like, kind of a spectacle for Jesus to do that, right? Knowing the angels are gonna save him. And it would be like this show of his like power and wonder. It'd be like a really good like kickstart to his ministry because Jesus' ministry wasn't public yet. So imagine like all the people going to church, they see Jesus do his thing. And that's like, that's my introduction to my ministry. Like I pull off magic tricks, basically. Let's run with that second interpretation really quick. This idea of giving people a show this idea of giving the people what they want, give them this stunning miracle, Jesus, this incredible display of your power. And if you think about Jesus and if you think about his ministry, this was his temptation throughout his ministry. There were critical moments over and over and over again where the people were longing for him to be something and he didn't give it to them. They wanted a conquering Messiah that would save them from the oppression and occupation of Rome. Like God overthrew, like Jesus overthrow the government and he didn't. There's a couple of people who wanted him to show up before their brother died or before their daughter died, but he showed up after they died. He didn't do what they want, still performed the miracle, but didn't do what they want. And I know there's a lot of people who didn't want him to be crucified on a cross, but he did it anyway. And over and over and over again, I need you to hear this. Jesus chose God's plan over people's approval or applause. And so that's the third thing that comes up when we get into solitude. When you get into solitude, you're gonna be faced with this in your life and it shows up in solitude. Am I living for people's applause or God's approval? Am I living for people's applause or God's approval? And friends, this one hits me hard. I'm like a recovering people pleaser. It's like, I want everybody to love me. And I find myself doing things just to get people to like me. Is anybody else like that? You like do things to get people to like you and then you know you're doing it and you're like, I don't know if I should be doing this. The fact is that so much of the time we live for people's applause over God's approval in our lives. And this is the thing, longing for approval is baked into us. Maybe for you, it's like the approval of your mom and dad or your girlfriend or your boyfriend or your best friend. Maybe it's your fiance. Or maybe it's like the masses of people on social media that you're just hoping will give you a clap or a like or a share, whatever it is. Whatever it is, it's like this unquenchable thirst and fire in so many of us that longs for approval and longs for applause. And most of the time we find it in people instead of God. So what does solitude and silence do? I want to share a video in a second of a, of a psychological experiment called the Still Face Experiment. And if you're familiar with technolo- or with uh, psychology, this experiment is commonly associated with the work of Dr. Edward Tronick, a developmental psychologist. And the still, the still Face Experiment is designed to observe reactions of infants when their mothers become suddenly unresponsive or maintain a neutral face. They'll explain it as you watch it. Check it out.
0: In the still face experiment, what the mother did was she sits down and she's playing with her baby who's about a year of age.
1: I'm like a girl. Oh.
0: And she gives a greeting to the baby. The baby gives a greeting back to her. This baby starts pointing at different places in the world and the mother's trying to engage her and play with her. They're working to coordinate their emotions and their intentions, what they want to do in the world. And that's really what the baby is used to. And then we ask the mother to not respond to the baby. The baby very quickly picks up on this. And then she uses all of her abilities to try and get the mother back. She smiles at the mother. She points because she's used to the mother looking where she points. The baby puts both hands up in front of her and says, what's happening here? She makes that screechy sound at the mother, like, come on, why aren't we doing this? Even in this two minutes when they don't get the normal reaction, they react with negative emotions. They turn away. They feel the stress of it. They actually may lose control of their posture because of the stress that they're experiencing. Okay.
1: okay. I'm here. And what are you doing?
0: Oh, yes. Oh, what be big girl.
1: Dude. I'm like emotional, (laughs) anybody else (laughs) kind of wrecked by that? We could have gotten Robbie and Britta up here to like do it live for us, (laughs) Um, But it actually got me really emotional. Um, What I loved about this video as it pertained to the text and the topic is um, we're like hardwired for this connection and hardwired for this like approval and interaction. And our problem is that we're trying to get approval and applause from the wrong places in our lives. Trying to get approval from anybody but God is like that baby trying to get approval from the still-faced mom. I want you to hear that again. In our lives, trying to get approval from anybody else but God is like that baby trying to get the approval or attention or connection from the mom with the still face. See, we'll be sold that we'll get applause from this world. We'll be sold that we'll get applause for our actions or for our performance. But in our souls, what we will get back from society eventually and inevitably is this still face that will never satisfy us. And we'll do just, and you see it in our lives. This is, we act out in our lives. We, we get bigger, we get louder. We're trying to get attention. We're trying to get approval. We're trying to get acceptance in so many ways because we've been sold a bill of goods that if you achieve this, and if you look like this, and if you act like this, then you're gonna get this and it doesn't happen. Or if it does happen, it's like crack cocaine and you just want more and it will never fulfill you. But you see the baby with the mom, what I love about it is when we get into solitude, it reminds us that the only approval and applause we need is God is from God. And you saw in the beginning that the, the mom is willing to give this baby applause just for showing up. This baby's not doing anything special. This baby just is and is getting all the love and affection and attention from this mom. That's your God towards you. Just show up. Just for showing up, you're getting this. Just for showing up, you're getting goo goo and gaga'd by God. Just for showing up, he doesn't need anything spectacular from you, he just longs for you to show up. And so the last tip I have for you, and this is gonna be a bigger one, and the band can start making their way up. Put a silent retreat on your calendar. This is like where you get your phone out, whatever calendar you have. You look at time that you have open, put a silent retreat on it. Um, I'm gonna ask that it's no less, we can start with baby steps. I'm gonna ask that it's no less than an hour, preferably two hours. Like find two hours on a Saturday, find two hours on a Sunday afternoon, go in a park, go to the beach. Don't talk to anybody. Don't look at your phone. You can bring scripture to look at it, but so much of the time that I've done this, I'm just alone with my thoughts and God. Just try it out, one hour, preferably two. And as we close this, I just feel led to pray um, as we're going into worship. Um, I just feel led to pray for anybody who just feels like I am in a place where I am... I've just been living for the approval of others and not God. There's a place in my life specifically that I'm like, this has just been for the approval of others. It could be a friend, it could be a boyfriend, it could be a girlfriend, it could be for your boss, it could just be for social media. But you know, you're just like, this is, I need to push away from this applause that I've been getting over here and get this approval. Like, I want God's applause in my life. So if you could close your eyes with me, um, i just love to pray for those people. If that's you, I'm just gonna ask you to do something bold and it might be just one or two of us in here tonight. I'm gonna ask you to do something bold and maybe we could get some piano so it feels a little just like more mellow in here. <laughs> not So yeah, there we go. I'm gonna ask you to do something bold. Um, I'm just gonna ask you to stand up if you need prayer. You're just saying, I don't wanna live for the applause of people. I want to live for the applause of God. If that's you, could you just stand up where you are? I just love the courage of those standing right now. It's really beautiful. It's really courageous and it's really beautiful. And God's just like goo goo ga ga right now. Yeah. As I pray, if you feel led, please stand. There's not like a cutoff time here for standing, but I just wanna pray for you. God, I, I thank you for each person standing right now. I thank you for the boldness to stand up. God, I thank you that you're safe to stand up in front of. God, you're safe to say, God, I need you. You're safe to say, God, I'm dealing with these things that um, I don't know how to deal with and I've been living for applause that I no longer wanna live for. God, I want you and I need you. I don't even know how to get there. God, that's right where you meet us, at our point of honesty and our point of need for you. So I praise you for those standing. God, I pray that you would mark their hearts and their minds tonight, that they would actually look back on this night and say, I used my body to stand up in a space and community to identify that I do not want to do X anymore, but I want to live for your applause, God. Holy Spirit, would you just do a work in the lives of those standing? God, I don't know their situations, but you do. God, I pray that you would just give them such a clear next faithful step. You need to hear if you're standing right now. You don't have to have this all figured out because you stood up. All God's asking you to do is to be honest with you and think about what a next faithful step would be. And I would recommend to anybody standing here, tell somebody about why you stood up tonight. That's the best next faithful step that you can have is tell somebody about this so that we can walk with you. God, we love you so much. We thank you that you invite us into this grace and into this space of response. God, we pray that you would get glory in this place as we worship you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Can we all stand and can we put our hands together and just thank God for those who stood tonight and the courage that it took to do that. Let's worship God together.
0: Thank you for listening to this message. I hope it was a blessing to you and want to invite you to join us on Thursday nights for service at 7 p.m. To connect with us, follow us on Instagram at CalvYA underscore or on our website, calvarywestlake.org.